0: This podcast is brought to you by the Toronto School of Management's NCA Exam Prep Program. The TSM NCA Prep Program offers internationally trained lawyers courses taught by practicing lawyers in Canada, expertly designed study guides, exclusive networking opportunities with top Canadian law firms, and employability sessions arming you with all the tools you need in order to hit the ground running in your pursuit to practicing law in Canada. To find out more about the program, you can email ncaprep at torontosom.ca. Shot of Life, a podcast aimed at highlighting the personal journeys of professionals and entrepreneurs in Canada, taking a snapshot of the person behind their professional title. This is episode 22. Our 22nd guest is Rebecca Lockwood. Rebecca has worked in education for over a decade. She began teaching languages in Spain and, since the launch of her company Grammatica, she has focused on legal education and practical skills-based learning for lawyers and legal professionals. From 2017 to 2020 Rebecca was a senior lecturer and LLB GDL MA program manager at the University of Law in Manchester where she taught legal skills, ethics, immigration and refugee law, and public law. In Spain she held various positions teaching professional English with government, language academies, private companies, and her own tutoring business. Rebecca is a licensed barrister and solicitor with the Law Society of Ontario. She graduated from Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto and is the lead program developer for the Toronto School of Management's NCA exam prep program. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Andon. Thanks for agreeing to do this special podcast series with me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So for the listeners who aren't familiar with Rebecca, Rebecca is the lead designer of the Toronto School of Management NCA exam prep program. And while the program spans quite a few different offerings, Rebecca has been in charge of kind of overseeing everything. And um, I think it would benefit everybody to learn a little bit more about you, Rebecca. So if you could get into a little bit about what you've done in the past in, and where you studied law and why you chose to study law, that would be really beneficial.
1: Sure. Um, so I first I did an undergrad degree, a Bachelor of Arts at McGill University in Montreal um, in sociology and Hispanic languages and literature. <laughs> so I, and I did that thinking either I'm going to become a teacher or I'm going to become a lawyer. Um, and it turns out that I am both I've done both. So I worked overseas for a few years, um, teaching in Spain, working in bilingual education, and then I decided to come back to Canada, and and do the law degree. Finally, Um, so I did my JD at Osgoode Hall in Toronto. I graduated from there in 2014, um, and I got called in 2015 after a very exciting uh, year of articling with Barbara Jackman of Jackman and Associates in Toronto. Um, It's a small um, refugee and immigration firm that specializes in social litigation and um, appellate work, um, mostly on the refugee side. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I, I did that very exciting year, I started my own practice in association with BARS. Um, so I shared office space um, and resources, but I was technically as a business running my own practice Um which was actually a great setup to if you if anyone's interested in ever doing that because you can in terms of confidentiality you can speak to other lawyers in the office um, and if you are ever sick or away or something someone else could can take on a file for you mm. and um, you know do a bit of work and meet with a client and you don't have to worry about confidentiality um, but you're still doing your own thing and you've got the benefit of having sort of a, a broader team in an office space as well so I am. Um, I, I really lucked out there um, with that setup, and I practiced for two years in immigration and refugee law, um, doing all sorts of types of applications, from refugee applications to uh, more economic immigration applications. Um, but then in 2017, I um, I moved to Manchester, England, uh, full time with my husband, who was completing his PhD there, and. Before, I had been running sort of mobile practice, a virtual practice, and I was jumping all over the place because of my husband's PhD Mm -hmm. research in India. Um, So actually, a lot of my practice took place from a hotel room in India um, (laughs) at (laughs) weird hours of the night. Um, But I was constantly going back and forth between Toronto and um, different parts of India. Um, But then in 2017, once we moved to England, I was a bit tired um of all of the bouncing around. And so I I paused my my practice. Um, I just put it on the shelf, which I hope to eventually get back down again and dust it Mm -hmm. off. Um, And I um I started teaching a law full time at the University of Law in Manchester, England. Um, So I was lecturing all sorts of things, constitutional, legal research and writing, ethics, immigration, refugee law. Um, So it was it was a really it was a great a great few years there um, and then I um, now what I'm doing is I'm sort of working in education legal education full-time again but now um, for myself with my company Grammatic International and working with the Toronto School of Management and, and this program this NCA program um, and I do a whole bunch of different types of courses professional development courses um, in sort of legal research and writing again and more substantive courses like um, constitutional for the NCA exam prep at Tson. So, um, I did eventually do what I, what I set out to do, become sort of a teacher lawyer <laughs> and yeah, I'm just, yeah, doing, pursuing all these new opportunities and, and, and things that come my way. So it's been a, been a very eventful few years since I became a licensed lawyer.
0: No kidding. And I think what's interesting is that I think a lot of internationally trained lawyers who are coming to Canada can kind of resonate. With your story, in that there is a lot of bouncing around, and you have to consider spouses mm-hmm. and what are do they doing. Yeah. And and some yeah. internationally trained lawyers come to Canada because of family. A couple of my first interviews were people who are coming on work holidays, or they're coming because mm-hmm. a spouse is studying in Canada and they've had a previous degree in another country in law, mm-hmm. and they're pursuing you know the NCA accreditation. So it sounds like. Regardless of where you're educated, um, love takes you all over the world, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah,
1: love you, knows no bounds. Yeah,
0: you kind of make <laughs> it work. And so, what's what's really interesting is that you found opportunities in these different stops to to pursue um, what you know you, you mentioned before, what your kind of goal your, or your passions were in the pursuit of mm. the study and practice of law, but also in education with 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 um, teaching at the University of Law and now. In developing a program with TSUM um, and also mm-hmm. your own company, Grammatica International. So mm-hmm. great, um, amazing background, Rebecca. And what I thought we would do um, is get into a little bit about the NCA exams. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's yes. fun, fun topic. <laughs> yes, of course, that's the topic everybody wants to talk about. And what's What's important to know how people can prepare and how people can best ace these exams so they can conquer the next step, which is generally speaking, the licensing process in Canada. Mm-hmm. So um, in the first instance, I thought it would be great for you to touch on exam technique.
1: Yes, sure. Um, so I think it's important to remember that these NCA exams are designed by um, Canadian law professors, and they are the syllabus, both the syllabus and the course materials for the MTA exams, as well as the exams themselves, are very similar to what you would find in a JD course. Mm-hmm. So um, th- that's also to say, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot mm-hmm. of information, um, and you know, you're you can choose to do a, a course like our exam prep courses, or you can choose to self-study um mm-hmm. but you know there's there is a lot of information to to go over and if you know if you're not really familiar with a certain area um then it might be a little bit more challenging also the, especially with the five core courses there are a lot of abstract concepts that are central to understanding administrative law or constitutional law um but it can be it's a bit difficult to understand how to apply them
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you know that's um I think one thing to think about when you're going looking at the the outlines, the course outlines, is that um, the those abstract concepts they will have a, a sort of a real application to a hypothetical scenario. Um, but you're going to have to understand sort of the, the background, what what that concept does in terms of providing a background or a foundation to a more specific piece of law, and mm-hmm. then understanding how to incorporate that concept and refer to it on, on a, a sort of a hypothetical, more real-life type of question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we look at uh, it in our, in our next conversation. Um, but <clears throat> I'd also just suggest when you're looking at the exam questions, um, make sure you actually look at them very carefully and read them through. That is something that I've heard from um, the NC organization themselves. That often people will will answer questions um, using material that they think is relevant, but actually the question has only asked for a specific element of the topic, um, and, and you know, or the quest- the question might be very broad, but often it's going to be a bit more specific than you think. So I think sometimes we sit down to an exam and we sort of the question a bit broadly, a bit vaguely, and we say, right, okay, I know this topic and you just put everything down that you know about the topic, when in actual fact, you still have to answer the question that's being asked. So you really have to pay attention to the question that's being asked. I'm going to give you some examples when we talk about the CRIM exam in a second. Um, the next thing I suggest when you're looking in terms of a general exam technique is like structure your answer. So Again, you don't want to just sort of regurgitate all of the information you know about a topic onto the page. Um, you want to make sure that you are you are conveying whatever information you know in a way that is digestible to the marker. So, if you're thinking about yourself, if you were going to be reading your work and marking it, how how would you like it presented, and how would it make it what how would what would make your job easier? Um, And and the first thing to do is to structure that answer. So it is easier to mark and it is easier to read. Um, So have an introduction, use subheadings, um, go through very clearly what the tests are for this particular um, issue, and then go through the application and then have a conclusion and make it really, really clear. You're basically going to use the IRAC method um, on your exam. We're going to talk about IRAC again in, in the exam technique session. Um, the, the long session, um, but you, you think about IRAC and, and use the same principle that IRAC provides you, which is basically go step by step, use headings, um, and make sure your answer is clear and well structured. Um, uh, again, the last, the last part or last suggestion I, I would give in terms of exam technique here is um, make sure that you are using specific examples and specific references to cases or articles. It isn't enough to simply cite a principle or um, summarize a concept if you are not speaking specifically to where it comes from. Um, this is the law after all. Um, so evidence is key, but um, I think that sometimes in a rush, when you are trying to just get so much so much down and maybe you're not sure you, you remember the topic, but you don't remember, the specific case. This is where doing an open book exam is going to be helpful, and also um, having organized notes will be helpful as well, because you can, you know, remember that. Okay, so mens rea is 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 the subjective element of a criminal um, a criminal charge, a criminal offense. Um, you know, where where is mens rea in my notes? So if you have well well-structured notes and that are super organized, you can go back to that section of your notes. You can find the key cases that you need to, to reiterate um, and make sure you're making specific references to those cases because mm-hmm. without that, you're losing half your mark.
0: Great points, Rebecca. I think, um, as you mentioned, um, a lot of the core modules specifically are those foundational subjects that in a Canadian, in, in a traditional JD program, they would probably be offered in the first year. And so yeah. they're drawing on a lot of principles and they're drawing on a lot of theory. And so candidates who aren't familiar with that will need to draw on that same theory and principles that the the first year Canadian JD is exposed to. So I think that's mm-hmm. a great point. I was wondering if you could touch on you mentioned Iraq and you mentioned that could you run through what Iraq is just very briefly? Sure,
1: yeah. So IRAC is an acronym that comes up a lot in a JD um, program mm. and it stands for Issue, Ratio, Application, and Conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first step of IRAC is to first um, articulate the issue that's, that's um, involved in the question. And any question is probably going to have multiple issues. Um, sometimes they're going to be outlined for you. Sometimes they will be hidden. You have to figure them out yourself. Um, but again, this is where reading the question will help you. So first you spot the issue um, and you you can make it a heading Or if we are thinking about this as, as an exam um, then you can make that issue a heading itself, you know um, does the accused fulfill the criteria for mens rea of X criminal charge um, and that can satisfy the, the IRAC, or the, sorry the I of IRAC, the issue yeah. of IRAC and then you're going to move on to the ratio the ratio is the um, the test or the rule from any key precedent, um, and, and under the R, you're going to um, reiterate those rules and tests from the key precedents, and just simply state them, just objectively. You don't have to jump into any um, evaluation or analysis yet. Mm-hmm. The analysis comes in the A, which is the application, and that's where you take your facts from your hypothetical question, and you apply the the test from the key precedent that you just stated above and you apply it and work with it to come to a come you know show your analysis really Mm -hmm. and then your conclusion The c of iraq will simply be you know has the mens rea been fulfilled like has the mens rea criteria been fulfilled will the does the accused have the adequate mens rea to be charged with x offense and then you simply state yes as per the analysis above um yes the mens there is evidence of of mens rea here
0: Mm -hmm. and Um, i I think there's it's it's a particular focal point of the NCA exams or, or exams generally speaking in Canada or even more broadly perhaps in North America, Iraq, um, and so I think that formula and those headings and the way that you um, sort of surgically approach answering those exam questions is really important.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and we were just talking about how um, you know. In, in a JD program, you know these core courses are taught over the course of a year, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of these core concepts they're they're you know they're all intertwined with each other. So you hear you hear them repeated. Like the charter comes up in foundations, it comes up in constitutional, obviously it comes up in criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they, you know, you, you have a year to kind of understand this from a broader perspective. An NCAA candidate doesn't have that luxury, unfortunately. Right. Um, but the exams are still going to be marked as if you were a JD student, of course, because you, um, they're designed by professors who teach JD students mm-hmm. um, and they're designed like a JD course. So um, one thing to sort of keep in mind is that, if you're coming from a jurisdiction, even if it's a common law jurisdiction, um, the style of exam might be very, very different in your home country Mm. than it is in Canada. And so half of the battle is understanding the expectations of the Canadian law professor who's going to be marking it um, and how the exam is going to be structured. And I think from from the students that I've worked with, um, that's one of the the greatest challenges um, is to is to simply understand those expectations which are you know cultural in terms of how a jd course is taught mm. so you know iraq might sound like a whole bunch of faffing about to some <laughs> mm. but um but we have to we do have to write to our audience as well so you know it, it's important to understand this new mode of or try to understand at least and try to use this new mode of structuring an exam answer even if it's um, not what you would do at home, um, but it's it's worth giving it a shot because I think that it's going to make a difference in the overall outcome of your exam. And, and remember that the NCAA exams are only you only have to get fifty percent to pass. Mm-hmm. So if you can structure your answer, use specific references, and answer the questions very specifically, I think that's going to get you <laughs> to the to the right. at least the halfway point to pass. Yeah. Um, and just by using those those um, t-
0: small techniques. And I've heard, you know, the, the IREC method and mastering that method in answering um, NCA exams is so important and actually does make the difference. So um, making Definitely. sure that you understand the order of things and, and how you're meant to answer the exams and that strategy specifically is, mm-hmm. is something that could really benefit you. Um, other, I mean, obviously, understanding this, the substantive side of the law and where the law comes mm-hmm. from and the theoretical aspects that are involved are so important, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in terms of what you're mentioning, Rebecca, you writing to your audience and what are they expecting? Yes. Um, and if yes. they're Canadian JD professors and they're expecting yes. a certain structure to the answer, it's so imperative that people yeah. understand what exactly people are looking for, because you could be, you know, such an, a, an excellent lawyer in Bangladesh and you could have, mm. you know, people working underneath you for 10 years, but because you may not understand the structure of the answer or, or the way in which um, exams are are graded here, it may hurt mm. you. So unfortunately that is the case, but fortunately, um, podcasts like this or or other mentors who are who are credible and who are really great can pass on that knowledge so i think that's a really great point iraq IRAC is important um was there anything else rebecca that you wanted to mention about exam technique
1: yeah i think i think this is just more a, a sort of a um an anecdotal suggestion um since, since 2012, when I started Grammatica, I have worked with hundreds of internationally trained lawyers mm. um, who were, you know, in Canada and about wanting to study or practice. And I would say that, you know, I've met some incredibly smart and bright and talented lawyers with way more experience um, in, practicing law than I have um, but even when someone has been practicing for 20 years in their home jurisdiction, there's still stuff that we can learn um, when we move to a new jurisdiction. And I know this personally, having you know worked in the UK and now in Australia myself. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It's, um, we we all have to shift and adapt to the the new expectations and models of our new um, practicing area. Um, but I would just say that of, of all the students and internationally trained lawyers that I've worked with, you know, the majority. The, the, the biggest problem or the biggest, I guess, hurdle in the work that I read is, is structure, actually. And it's the communication of the ideas. It's not the ideas itself. Mm-hmm. I know that um, I can tell by reading that there's really, really strong comprehension of the, of the, the theory and the topic. Um, and a really interesting analysis coming out um, of, of many of the, of the students I've worked with. Um, but what is missing is how you communicate it. So um, that it is worth putting some time thinking about it because like I said before, it can, it it may make a difference to pass you over the line. Um, And also I would say that although perhaps it's a little bit um, frustrating and I, again, I can appreciate this because it is frustrating to have to retrain and go through all of these examinations and all of these hurdles after you've already done this in your home jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Um, But Putting in this kind of work and retraining, even just a little bit, um, whether it's doing a prep course or an exam technique session or something like that, um, will will help you. We all need, we all continue to learn, um, and it's not a, uh, um, it's not it has nothing to, to to do with intellect or talent or ability. It is simply just learning about the new environment that you're going to be working in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important to recognize that you know, the internationally trained lawyer community has a lot to offer. And sometimes that's lost in the fluff of structure. <laughs> and, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, and 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 it's innocent enough. And it's something that, that's easily corrected. And there are some frustrations around that, understandably. But um, in some ways, the licensing bodies here in Canada require certain things to be met. And, and if you're able to meet those, then you're able to relate to the client in some way. Because I mean, I've spoken to Dr. Mitchell Moore of CPLED and um, you know Deborah Wolf of the NCA, and there, there, there are many people that I've spoken to who hold, sort of hold the keys, and they all say that their job, first and foremost, is to protect the public in some ways. So mm-hmm. there, there's a method. To this, you know, proverbial madness mm-hmm. that some people have issue with because they say, you know, I'm a really successful lawyer from India. What am I doing? Like, why do I have to toil in in this minutia of Iraq? Um, and but there's a method to it, right? Um, and it, and sometimes it's cultural, sometimes it's jurisdictional. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's important, you know, and it's one of those things that unfortunately or fortunately people just need to be able to learn to master and um, the more tips that they're given, the more, you know, tricks of the trade and and strategies that they're offered through hopefully this podcast and other mediums. um, Hopefully that helps.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And it's all, it's all just about helping to achieve a goal really Mm -hmm. Um, which is to practice and serve the public.
0: Yeah, that's right. we're,
1: We're all working towards the same thing here, I think.
0: Exactly. And, and one thing that's opened my eyes in, in all of this really is that um, the, the law societies, um, you know, the, the provincial sort of keepers of the bar, as it were, all of their mandates are to protect the citizens of those particular provinces. And so lawyers need to understand that, and, and prospective lawyers coming to Canada need to understand that. And so while there may be policies that they may not agree with, really ultimately um, they're meant to just protect the citizens of that particular province. Oh, oh, and, Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. country itself. So um, Mm -hmm. great, great insights because it can be a lot, you know, like you say, there are really, really great lawyers who have really great ideas and they get lost because it's just, they're, Mm -hmm. they're not answering in a, in a way that's structured um, familiar to, to a Canadian examiner in some ways. So, Moving on from exam technique, Rebecca, um, I was wondering, you know, the NCA exam schedule has changed Mm -hmm. um, and criminal law is now going to be offered in January and not every core NCA exam module will be offered in January, but CRIM will. And um, maybe you've got some insights into how to approach a criminal law exam and and more broadly, um, what is the CRIM syllabus all about?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so any, I think from my, my reading of the um, NCA syllabi, uh, that they, they do a good job at, um, at showing the history and the sources of the law of the different various topics, criminal included. Um, and like I said earlier, sometimes those broader concepts are difficult to understand how to apply understand them, period, perhaps, um, but then also how do you apply them in a real-world scenario? You might get, you know, there's a criminal, um, a criminal charge, there's a criminal provision, um, I go through the test and I figure out if this person meets that test and will be charged with the criminal offense, and that's easy enough, but how do we, what about the, the broader ideas, like where, where does that fit? And so what I'm thinking about specifically when I say that is, Um, the very first part of the criminal syllabus is the source of criminal law and the power to create criminal offenses. So I think it's important to understand this as a background. um, And I wouldn't say to spend a ton of time on it, but it may come up on an exam in the sense that um, if there is a question where a court or a... um, A a body, a governmental body, is trying to create a new criminal law or trying to impose a sanction um, on, you know, the hypothetical accused. Um, And you, as the taker of the exam, have to determine whether or not it's within the power or the jurisdiction of that court or or governmental body to create that new law or impose that new sanction. So that's where the first part of the, the syllabus, the criminal syllabus might come into play. Um, the second part of the syllabus is the charter. And again, it's, um, it's a bit funny that I think the criminal exam is coming before the constitutional exam because to mm-hmm. me, the constitutional exam helps you um, to understand the criminal exam, simply because of the overlap of the charter. But maybe you've already done the constitutional exam, so this this is, or maybe you're doing both that month, so it doesn't really matter. But the point is, the charter um, comes up in in crim, and it's it's big. It's it's a big part of criminal law, especially when you're thinking about um, the protection of the rights of the accused and procedural protection. So we know based, even if we don't practice criminal law. Um, we know that a lot of cases might be overturned or um, appealed based on a procedural issue, um, and, and the Charter has something to say there. Um, if a procedural step is not followed, um, then that might impact the right, the right of the accused to a fair hearing. Um, mm. So we have to understand those those concepts um, as well, and it's not as detailed, obviously, as it would be in the constitutional exam. Um, But the criminal syllabus does outline some key cases and some key rights that come up often. So, you know, it it is important to review that. And if you are doing studying for both at the same time or if you've already done constitutional, um, that will help you, too.
0: Um,
1: I think, you know, when we think about criminal law and what we think about what might come up on the exam, we sort of think um, there's a criminal um, offence. And we have to figure out which criminal provision applies here. Uh, We have to go through the test for that uh, criminal offense and then go through any potential defenses. um, And then go through any, um, you know, if, if they are guilty of that charge, then, you know, what is the sentence? What would the sentence be? But in this criminal syllabus, there's actually a little bit more, and some parts are a bit chunkier than others. So, for example, when we're thinking about criminal provisions and the criminal offenses themselves, um, a huge portion of the criminal syllabus is focused on the objective and subjective element of those provisions. So, the actus reus and the mens rea. So, we have to understand, again, um, the broader concept of what objective and subjective elements of a, a criminal provision are but those are essential to determining whether or not someone's going to be found guilty. So if you are not familiar with criminal law, then I would, you know, definitely absorb that section. Um, it's not about, I remember seeing on a Facebook, um, NCA group recently, like, how do you remember all of the criminal provisions? Um, and you don't, like you won't remember all of them. Mm. You have the criminal code in front of you to help you, um, Likely it'll it'll be a charge that will have come up in your readings. It have come up in the sample exam, perhaps. So it's not going to be some, you know, minute, minor charge that you've never heard of. It's going to be a bit, you know, a bit more obvious than that. Um, But another key. So we do we do have to think about the criminal charges themselves, but we have to think about it a bit more broadly in terms of what else is. is, is made up of a, a criminal charge, and how do we determine whether or not someone's guilty? Um, defenses are also a huge part of the syllabus. There's a lot of defenses that are listed there, not, not exhaust, exhaustive lists, but um, there are a lot of defenses there. So uh, again, you're gonna to want to understand if a, a defense will apply to the accused in your hypothetical scenario. And then when, you, when it, if, you, if the accused is found guilty, if you determine that the accused is guilty, um, we're going to be looking at um, what sentence might they be given. But on the criminal syllabus, you'll notice that sentencing is not as big as some other sections. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, don't worry too much about this, I would say, Mm. if you're not sure, if you don't get exactly the sentence right. Um, However, one thing to note here is that um, you, this is where you should pay attention to the question and what it's asking. Perhaps they're going to just ask you what is the criminal, you know, uh, potential criminal charge and any defenses that apply. But they might ask you for the full analysis, including the sentence. Um, or they might just ask you for a sentence. It might be a shorter question. They might just ask you if someone's charged with aggravated assault. Uh, in this scenario, what is the sentence likely to be? So pay attention to the question. Make sure it's it's asking you to include details like that. Um, And another element of the the criminal syllabus um, that's quite major is um, the procedure in court, whether it's a jury trial or not a jury trial, and what happens there. Um, What happens when you appeal a decision? Can you appeal a decision? What kinds of decisions can you appeal? So that is something to pay attention to as well. And I think, again, that's sort of an element that's often forgotten. But I'm going to go back and repeat myself, but you're going, you, you should definitely pay attention to the question that's asked
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because if it's an appeal, it's going to be different, a different process to if it's a first instance court um, and the, the offense is going to be um, investigated. The criminal offense is going to be investigated for the first time versus at the appeal stage. And, um, you know, you know, it's the different rules of evidence apply um, there's a different process, so make sure you're understanding at what level of court this is, this is starting at, um, and do you need to look at some of the details of, say, a jury trial or not? Um, you know, you might get one massive question, and that's going to ask you to go through the full hypothetical uh, scenario from the offense to the appeal, but I think more likely than not, you're going to have a couple of questions that break it down a little bit more. But again, just just look to what the question is asking. Hmm. Um, I've kind of run through, I think, the entire criminal syllabus.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's really helpful, Rebecca. I think um, running through from from the general syllabus and the the sources of criminal law, um, actus reus, mens rea, um, defences, keeping everything in mind, that that definitely makes sense. I know anecdotally speaking, I don't have much to offer, but <laughs> when, I, when I shadowed a criminal law lawyer here in Ontario, um, it was really enlightening for me because really the, the cases that you read, uh, and this is, this is sort of unrelated to exam technique or anything like that, but the cases that you read on paper, when you see them in person, they're really actually quite confronting. And um, it's actually really interesting if you're able to engage if you're actually interested in criminal law, I recommend engaging with a criminal law lawyer here in Canada, because a lot of them actually are solo practitioners, and if you're able to volunteer uh, or get a sense of of what it's like uh, I think it's so valuable because I learned a lot without actually doing much, you know, it's Mm -hmm. sitting, sitting in a, in a, in a lawyer's sort of den that they called it, which was an interview Mm -hmm. room in a Brampton, Ontario uh, courtroom is, is really interesting (laughs) because you hear, you hear a lot from lawyers where, where they're presented with, with cases and they're, they're defending clients who have, who've committed crimes that you read about in the textbook, but there's so much nuance involved. Um, and I think that's yeah. what what's kind of involved in the exam too is to, is to think about the nuance as well. And so when you're answering questions it's, it's to be structural, of course, but to also consider those those aspects that you might be able to bring in in terms of what a defense might be and things like that.
1: Definitely. Um, and, and just back, jumping back to your your point about the fact that um, Most criminal lawyers are sole practitioners. That's definitely true. Mm. Um, And one thing that I get asked often is, like, how do I approach? um, How do I get into this kind of area, whether it's immigration or family or criminal, where there are so many sole practitioners? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not as there's not as sort of a streamlined process or structured process as there might be to go into sort of a bigger corporate type of firm um so you do have to be creative and you have to be quite personal and 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 enterprising in terms of reaching out asking for a coffee asking if they you know a lawyer might be willing to um have a you shadow them for like you did anton
2: Mm -hmm. um
1: but you do have to do a bit more research in the sense like and and figure out people that you want to approach Mm -hmm. Um, and I think also be mindful of your ask. <laughs> Make sure that it's something yeah. within reach. Um, of course, like you know, shadowing, asking someone if you could tag along to court one day. Um, I mean, pandemic aside, um, but you know that, that that's that's doable, mm-hmm. um, and and that doesn't require much on the on the lawyer's part apart from asking the client if that's okay.
0: Yeah. So. Um, no, yeah, I I agree. I When I when I got back from law school in the UK, I was I remember vividly sitting on the stoop of a friend of mine who, you know, he's he's a great guy, but he's not a lawyer. He's got nothing to do with it. But he is his fiance at the time had a friend who whose husband was a criminal lawyer. And there you go. There's my connection email or text. And he says, yeah, show up at this time. And there there was 12 weeks of my life and it was it was a really great experience and Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes I would sit there in the courtroom and just watch and sometimes um you know criminal law it's it can read very exciting in terms of reading cases and how but really in some in some cases (laughs) um the offenses are minor and so when you're going to court um a lot of the time you're asking the judge or the justice yeah. of the peace for an extension of time, or yeah. you know, if it if it's if it's a driving offense, it may be just you know it it is actually really interesting. So when you were yeah. speaking about the the crim syllabus and and all of the things the things to consider, it's just one of those things. If you have an opportunity, and obviously, COVID has thrown a bit of a spanner in in the mix, but. If it's possible to get some practical experience, I think it lends to the ability yeah. to understand the concepts and they' they become less, um, you know, abstract and a little bit more yeah. personal and you're able to to draw on personal experiences and and it is one of those subject areas where you can, if you really go about it like you said, it not asking too much, but sort of, hey, can I shadow you? Can I, you know, show up in a suit (laughs) at a courtroom and walk around with you and see what happens? That kind of thing.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, So so moving on from CRIM, uh, Rebecca, constitutional law, um, that exam Mm. is also held uh, soon. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through a little bit about the syllabus and a bit of the constitutional law exam strategy.
1: Sure. So, um, the constitutional law is a biggie, like it is, it is the biggest exam, the biggest syllabus
2: um, mm-hmm.
1: of the NCA collection. Um, and like I was saying before, there's a lot of very abstract conceptual ideas involved here. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people struggle with, with the constitutional exam, because it's like, how will this show up <laughs> in a more sort of real life scenario? Mm. Or how do I answer a, an, an essay question or a more of a policy related question on a topic of the Aboriginal law or peace order and good government, which perhaps you are not so familiar with or you don't, can't really get your head around? Um, I remember for me, when I was studying peace order and good government was, um, was a big one, um, and it, it, it took a while to sort of understand where, where it fit. So I, I feel like half of the constitutional syllabus is like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, unlike what I just said with CRIM, I'm not going to run through the entire syllab- syllabus, syllabus. Um,
0: we, don't I, time, I, I, <laughs> we don't have that much time Rebecca
1: we don't have that much time and I think it's not really that useful um, mm. but one one section that I know people struggle with um, as did I um, my constitutional prof in in my first year of law school told me Rebecca you just have to wrestle the puppy you've got to wrestle the puppy mm. and whenever I come across this particular um, section of the charter I go back to her words about wrestling the puppy. And it is like that. You just have to kind of just keep trying and eventually it'll calm down and you'll have it within your grasp. Right.
2: Um,
1: so, you know, the charter obviously takes up a massive portion, like the other half of, of the criminal law, or sorry, the constitutional law um, syllabus. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about the charter rights per se, but we're going to look at section one of the charter. So a reasonable limit to a charter right. So um, when we're thinking about section one, the text of section one says, um, reasonable limits prescribed by law, as can be demonstrably justified in the free and democratic society. And basically the test is all right up in the wording of that section. Mm -hmm. So whenever we have a charter challenge, so basically a law um, that someone is saying has breached a charter right. Usually it's a new law, you know, that's come up or maybe an old law, but it's being challenged. Um, and, um, and we're saying that that, that law does, does not conform to the charter, which it, it has to. Um, there are limits to that, but it, it should, in principle, at, at first, <laughs> um, you know, conform to the charter and not breach any of the rights. Um, So, the first thing we have to do is determine whether or not a charter right has been breached by that um, particular law, and if we find that it has breached the right, then we move to section one. So, is that limit on a charter right or is that infringement on a charter right a reasonable one that can be demonstrably justified, justified in a free and democratic society, okay? So basically section one is saying sometimes um, it's okay to breach a charter right, um, but it has to conform to certain criteria to make sure that it's reasonable and justify, justified in our democratic society. So that's where we go to the Oaks test. Um, Oaks was, was a case, I think in the eighties, well, maybe early nineties because um, no eighties it was, um, because a charter was only drafted in the 80s. Um, so there are four parts to the Oaks Test. So once we have determined whether or not a charter right has been breached, then we look to Section 1 and the Oaks Test. So first, um, a law must have a sufficient, so an sufficiently important objective to justify infringing or limiting a charter right. So what is the objective there? That's what we're looking at. Step two, um, the law must have a rational connection to the objective. So it can't be, you know, there might be a a good objective, a good reason for a law, but we have to show that it actually connects to law itself. Mm. Um, step three is the, that impairment or that limitation on the right is not more than necessary to accomplish that, the, the objective. So basically, um, is it proportional? And step three and step four are kind of similar here because step four says the law must not have a disproportionately severe impact on the person to whom it, it applies. So is it necessary and proportionate, whatever limitation? Right. I'm not going to give an example here because, again, that would that would take take up a long
0: time. Yeah, and quite <laughs> frankly, it might be a bit boring. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Um, But I I can say that, you know, when you are dealing with with section one on an exam, Mm -hmm. it can, you have to, again, look to the question, what is it asking? If the question is asking, is there a charter right that's been breached by this proposed law? You first have to look to the charter and determine whether or not, so determine which right might be infringed. Uh, you have to look to the specific test of that right, mm-hmm. um, and and what um, you know does this law infringe the this particular right as per the test. Um, and remember, look to your key precedents um, and any associated articles. Um, and if you determine that a, a charter right has been breached. And only if you do that, then, then you can look to Section 1. But if the question is asking broadly, like, has a charter right been breached, and you find that, yes, there has been a, 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 an infringement of the charter, then you have to move on and you have to look at Section 1 because you have to see whether or not that infringement on the charter right is um, justified mm-hmm. and reasonable. So that's where Section 1 comes up. And if it's on an exam, this is going to be a massive question because just the, just the charter analysis, the charter breach analysis, that can be a lot of analysis and a lot of work and a lot of words
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and a lot of understanding. Section one is a whole other element here. Um, but perhaps, again, the question might be asking, so section seven um, has been breached. It's shown to be breached. So take that as a given. Um, now move on to section one. And just determine whether or not that breach has be, is justified. Um, so the question might only be asking you for the section one analysis. Hopefully that will happen, and the you know the the exam writer is um, will be kind to you that day, um, because um, it is you know it's, it's a lot of work. But you just again pay attention to the question. Is it asking you for both or just one part? Uh, one element. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I first came up so when I was studying this in, in law school it seemed to me like oh, okay yeah four steps you know four steps to a test I got this it's no problem um, and then in my articling year I came up came, was confronted by the section one uh, and Oaks test in a very real way um, and it kind of like knocked me off my feet about with how much how much was actually involved Mm. in this. Um, and so I I said, I had a very exciting article year and I did. Um, sometimes I say I had an article year on steroids because it was so busy and we did so much in that year. Um, at the firm, it was like, like highlights of one's like 20 year career. (laughs) Um, (laughs) like, you know, I mean, not that I was doing it all myself, obviously I was just helping, but, um, You know, it was like, I got to go to the Supreme Court and work on a massive Supreme Court case, Um, Kansas Family, it was called. And then I went to the Ontario Court of Appeal on another groundbreaking case um, that was Chowdhury. And it was, it was huge. These were huge issues in immigration law. And somehow my articling term kind of coincided.
0: Coincided, yeah.
1: Yeah, with both of these, these cases coming up and going to court. Um, so I was really, really lucky in that sense. Um, but I remember, so the the one that went to the Ontario Court of Appeal was a habeas corpus application for an, for immigration detainees, um, and that has been tried before. Like people had brought a habeas corpus application on behalf of immigration detainees before, but without success.
0: And before um, you continue, it, sorry, Rebecca, just what is sure. habeas corpus for those?
1: Yeah, so the habeas corpus is a review of someone's detention. Um, And it is a, it's a, it's a, writ, a particular type of application that you can apply to for, um, and ask the court to, to review. Mm -hmm. But usually it's only in the context of criminal, um, detainees. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually it's only comes up in criminal courts. So, um, it was unusual, um, for the court to hear our, um, hear our application Mm -hmm. um, for for habeas corpus. And it was, um, we got the Ontario Court of Appeal. So we were actually just going to the Ontario Court of Appeal to just determine whether or not the criminal court had jurisdiction to hear this habeas corpus application on behalf of immigration detainees. Mm -hmm. And so one of our arguments was that, um, you know, indefinite detention of an immigration detainee is is a breach of their charter rights and not being able to access criminal, um, access habeas corpus in this particular court was a breach of the Charter Act. So we mm. were challenging that law and that decision that wouldn't let us go to the criminal courts to, to ask for that habeas corpus. Um, long story short, that case was one. <laughs> it was mm. determined that there was jurisdiction. Um, and so there have been many, many habeas applications since then. Um, but at the time, I remember we were—it uh, was the eve before going to the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, we had the hearing in the morning. Um, it was the evening, and I was working on some research for the case. And my supervisor, Barb Jackman, called me into office and said, "Rebecca, can you please um, can you please provide me a, a section one analysis of our argument?" of our um, charter breach argument and also can you do it in 20 minutes because <laughs> i i have i have to leave <laughs> so just just draft it for me quickly um and send it to me because i need i need this i'm going to prepare tonight and I, and I said sure i left <laughs> your office and then i had like i looked at my watch and i was like oh my god i i had like a two minute meltdown because I, not even two minutes it was like two seconds i didn't have two minutes to spare <laughs> and i was just like oh my god how am i this is huge. How am I going to do this? Um, and I, uh, so I just sort of sat down and I pulled up, I think I literally pulled up my constitutional notes. Um, and I went through the test and I was just like, holy crap, there's, this is so much,
2: actually. Mm-hmm. You know, All
1: of that sort of smug law student attitude that I had when I was studying, I was like, yeah, four steps, no problem. No, that's massive. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really, there's like you, you were talking about before, there's so much nuance involved. So I was like, pain, well, I couldn't really be painstaking about it because I didn't have time to. So I whipped something together. I made a cute little chart, and uh, I, I did my best. In the 20 minutes that I had, I sent it to her and, you know, off she went to her, to her meeting or her appointment or whatever. And I just sort of sat in my desk kind of like numb going, oh, my God. Like, I hope that was okay. And then the next day, we, um, we arrived at the Ontario Court of Appeal and I realized that Barb has printed out my notes and only has my notes for Section 1. Oh, no. So the Section 1 analysis. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sitting there, bes- like sitting down at the, at the desk and I was like, Oh my God! I hope that's right.
2: that be right like she's yeah. just
1: re- she she's yeah. just reading from that page um but of course, like she would know she's been doing this for, for almost forty years, and she you know this is this is not new to her. I'm sure she's mm. done sex she can do section one in her sleep, but to me at that moment, I was like holy holy crap i can't I'm not gonna swear But I was mm. definitely swearing <laughs> um, like this is you know so anyways, that that's my little um. My experience was actually one, and uh um i did I wrestled that puppy just like my constitutional prof told me
0: there you um, go and it can happen right i I think that anecdote's perfect like it 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 almost in some respects will come to the attention of lawyers who pursue certain fields, whether it's immigration or criminal you know y- you will have to either produce it for. For an articling principal, or or for a partner, or something like that. So it's important to understand how important it is, really, to grasp the concepts of it and to to sort of nail it in the first instance. Like you said, there's sort of this law school um, kind of <laughs> mentality about it, where you kind of think of it as very clinical. Um, but yeah. then w- when you're expected to produce it in a professional sense, and somebody's presenting it to an Ontario Court of Appeals, it becomes all of a sudden really real. And you're like, holy crap, (laughs) what am I supposed to do here? Like, is what I studied, and is my perception real or not? So I think that's a really good anecdote because um, it kind of paints the picture that this stuff is not only academic, it's actually, you know, in practice quite real.
1: Definitely. And it was also a really good lesson um, for being succinct, actually um and and creating something um, an analysis that someone else could read mm. um, and and read it sort of quickly and um comprehensively, so you know that my little chart had sort of the the test in bold, the four steps of the test in bold, and then I'd go through in point form the analysis and the the reasons why you know like the what is the objective and why is it important and things mm-hmm. like that. But of course, um, in this case, I was trying to show that section one, there. Was, this wasn't a reasonable limit because I wanted the charter breach to just stand. I didn't want it to be justified. Mm-hmm. So there was you know, that other element to it, which is on, different on an exam because you are trying to look at the problem a bit more objectively, a bit mm-hmm. more broadly, even if um, this is actually a good point to note for the exam technique. Um, even if you have been given you say, you're saying the, the hypothetical scenario says that you work for a lawyer and this person is your client, even if that person is your client and you're going through an analysis with them in mind, on the exam, the marker is going to want you to, sh- to see that you understand both sides of the case and can determine what side is stronger. Mm-hmm. They're not looking for advocacy on a law school exam, which is another area where I think people get a little bit gung ho and they they start.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and they, they really start going, you know, I'm going full throttle for the, on the behalf of their client. And I understand why you do that, but thinking about it from sort of an examiner's perspective and like a law school perspective, really the exam is about showing your knowledge, your ability to analyze and come to a reasoned conclusion. So, um, Even if you you determine that the you know um, you determine the analysis in favor of your client, you still have to show why the other side might have a good argument.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of a representation of your understanding of the materials rather than. Um, a representation of your advocacy skills or or your yes, argu- exactly. argumentative skills. Um, exactly, that yeah. will come,
1: that will come. <laughs>
0: exactly, yeah. Um, and and it, for the most part, for NCA candidates who are, who are trained in other jurisdictions, who have some experience in other jurisdictions, mm-hmm. they may feel very, you know, in some senses um, validated in their attempts to advocate on behalf of their client because they have experience yeah. in some ways. But really yeah. what you're saying yeah. is, take a step back and understand it's not about that right now.
2: Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly that. Great. Well, Rebecca, Rebecca thank you yeah. so much. Uh, I'm just looking at my notes here and it looks like we've covered a lot. Um, we've covered basically yeah, exactly. two full um, <laughs> modules. No, we haven't quite done that, but I think <laughs> what we've done is given a bit of a taste as to what to expect for crim um, and what to expect for constitutional law. And um, there, there will be other anecdotal sessions coming for, for listeners who are interested and, uh, Rebecca, I just want to thank you for your time and, and for your anecdote. I think that's amazing, you know, to, I, I, it's sort of one of those that you hear those sort of legendary anecdotes where it's like, you know, your, your article principal or, or a partner in a firm says, Um, I need this in 20 minutes and I'm actually going to print it out and, and present it at, (laughs) (laughs) you know, at an an appeals court. And you're like, uh, okay, well, all of a sudden law school has become real. And it's really interesting because what, what I think is valuable in that is that people are studying texts and they're, they're, you know, they're purchasing notes or they're making Mm -hmm. their own notes Mm -hmm. and they're all trying to make sense of everything. But really what's important to realize is that it's not just academic here. Um, all of these things that you're learning and that you're you're kind of formulating in your mind and you're you're strategizing for an exam is actually something that could come up. So I think that was really great. Yeah,
1: well, it was. Um, oh, I have so many anecdotes. Um, <laughs> and we'll get, we'll, we'll get to them. We'll, we'll get to them. Get and get that's a that great segment. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> Imagine the cliffhanger. You know, everybody's like, "Oh my oh. god!" <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. No, I I I really appreciate your time, Rebecca. I know, like. For those who don't know, me, yeah, and Rebecca's located right at the moment in Australia. And, um, you know, here we are speaking from the Eastern time zone and uh, in Perth, Australia. So um, I really appreciate the time and we'll get back to it and, and we'll make this sort of a regular feature for people because I know how valuable it is.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Anton, and, you know, for joining in my laugh as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, thank you so much, Rebecca. does it for our very first attempt to offer some insights into the particulars of NCA exams. Um, Rebecca's got a lot of experience teaching this content and I hope that everybody benefited from learning about what she suggests your strategies should be and how you should look at the syllabi um, for the courses that we spoke about today. We'll be offering um, these kinds of episodes on a more regular basis moving forward so that everybody can shore up their understanding or listen to this before they even begin studying for the exams to get a sense of how you should approach them. I hope you really enjoyed the episode and uh, if you have any feedback, obviously mention it in comments on social media or send, send an email to the email that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Otherwise, I really hope again that you enjoyed it and um, we'll look out for more of these. Until then, we'll talk again.